0: our Bibles now, if you would, please, and let's open them to Philippians chapter 3, third chapter of Philippians, as we continue our study through this great epistle of Paul. One of the most enjoyable aspects of my ministry in Berean has been the Sunday morning forum class. I know some of you don't like the format of that class, but I really enjoy it. I started the class about 10 years ago, and I enjoy the class because I really like to hear what's on people's minds and the kind of questions that you have about the Bible. And to conduct that type of class where we uh, take all kinds of questions from every part of the auditorium, anybody who wants to ask anything about the Bible, as you can imagine that takes a, a fairly good working knowledge of the Scriptures. Uh, sometimes I get stumped, as you know, because I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. I've been studying the Bible my entire life, and uh, I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. And I get some questions that I'm not expecting, and sometimes I have to do a little bit of research to get to the bottom of things and find out the real answer that needs to be given. But one of the things that I don't want to do with a Sunday morning forum class is to conduct a Bible trivia class. Um, you know, there are many people who have... A knowledge of the Bible. I mean, they know facts and figures, and they can recite a lot of different things. They can memorize verses. Um, There are people that have a fairly good working knowledge of things that are in the Gospels, and there may be people even here that could recite to you some stories and know some little nuances about the New Testament that I don't know. But I don't want to conduct a Bible trivia class. What I'm really more interested in is not that we know about Christ, but that we know him. Just not that we know who he is, but we know what he did, why he did it. And we understand what Christ did was for us. That's most important to us. But also just to have that closeness of intimate fellowship with him, to learn him in a more intimate way. That was Paul's goal in his life. Now, of course, he was a master at the Scriptures. Uh, probably no one that will read about outside the Lord Jesus Christ knew him out about as much about about Scripture, I should say, as Paul did. And we look into the first part of this third chapter of Philippians, and we see that as he speaks about, in religion, he said, "I'm, I'm above everybody else as far as that goes. I mean, I put my heart, my soul, my zeal into it. He talked about all that he was. And it wasn't that Paul, in this part of his life, as he writes the book of Philippians, that he's interested to know about Christ. He'd learned that. He knew that. What he wanted to do was to know Christ. And that's to have a more intimate relationship with him. And that means to experience him. And that's really what I want to talk to you about tonight from two verses of Scripture. Our text verses tonight are the 10th and the 11th verses. But let's stand as we read God's Word. We're going to start reading at verse number 7. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. Our text verses are verses 10 and 11 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for each person who's come tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word that we've read. I ask you, Lord, you'd open up this text before us and help us to understand the real heart of Paul as he wanted to know Jesus better. And I just pray that might be the cry of all of our hearts to know you better in a more intimate way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we can really understand Paul's statement in these two verses, we have to understand what he means by knowing Christ. Now this evening, I want to give you three ways of understanding to show you what it means to know Christ. First, in our outline tonight, we need to understand that it is literal And I mean that this is something real. By literal, I mean that this is something that you can experience. Jesus lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, and it's possible for us to study his life, and we can learn about him from the aspect of Jesus being an historical figure. Jesus can be an academic study for us, so that we can learn all the things that he did in his life, just like we could study any historical figure. When I was younger, I remember that I really used to like reading biographies. When I was in the fifth grade, our school had a really extensive section of biographies, and I loved to read those. And so by the time that I was out of the fifth grade, I'd read about 50 or 60 biographies. So I had plenty of time to do it. It took me three years to get out, so I had plenty of time to read them. But I was interested in, in those biographies because I love history. But in all those biographies that I read, I can't honestly say that I was able to actually experience the life of those people. I read about them, I learned about them, but there's not a sense in which I could say that I experienced them. When we talk about knowledge, we can speak of subjects like math or physics, and those are subjects that can be memorized. But has anyone ever said that I've actually experienced what the square root of 2025 is? You might know the answer to that, but have you really experienced that? That's not something you experience, it's just something that you know. I can say that I know about how that two elements can combine to form a molecule, but I don't think anybody would say, I really know what it means to share my electrons with something and, and understand it in that way. We don't experience things in that way, it's just things that we know. Well, Paul has a much more literal approach to the word knowledge when he speaks about knowing Christ. When Paul speaks about knowledge, it's even different from his conversion experience. Now, those of us that are saved, we've all had a conversion experience, and certainly we do know Christ in that way. But Paul is speaking of something that's deeper than his conversion experience. Now, what I've called this tonight in your outline is that his experience that he wants to have with Christ is deeper than Damascus. Deeper than Damascus, no one has quite had the experience that Paul had on the road to Damascus. Now, he just received letters of authority from the priest in Jerusalem to go and track down Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. He hated Christians. He really thought that he was doing God's work when he he pursued after them and put them into prison. But on the road to Damascus, as Paul was traveling, he was going to arrest Christians, but instead Jesus arrested him. Jesus appeared to him in a bright light and he stopped him right there, dead in his tracks. And Paul heard the words of Jesus speaking to him. He didn't resist. He surrendered to the power and to the will of Christ. And he said to him, Lord, what will you have me to do? That was quite an experience. There's none of us that needs to expect that we're going to have a Damascus Road experience. But Paul wanted something even deeper than that. He acknowledged Jesus at that time. He trusted him as the Savior at that moment. But he wanted more than just a Damascus Damascus experience. He met Christ at that time, but he wanted more. He wanted to be better acquainted with him. And so that means then that Paul was really more than just interested in Jesus, but rather that Paul wanted to become intimate with him. Have you ever met someone that at the very first meeting that you were struck by that person? I mean, you talked with them for a while, and you found out that you had common interests. Perhaps you found out that this person is charming, he's likable. And after meeting that person, you said, well, I'd really like to get to know that person better. And so perhaps you ask for a meeting or another time when you could get together and just sort of get to know one another, to meet together and spend some time together. Now, that's what Paul means here. He's looking for every opportunity in which he can become more intimate with Christ. Now, it's interesting that when the Scripture uses the word know in this this way, it's actually using it in the sense that a husband knows his wife. The Bible says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And so the word know there is a word that actually is used for intimate sexual contact. It doesn't, doesn't mean that Adam just knew who his wife was like he, like he knew her name, but he had a, a relationship with her. This very same word is used in Amos chapter 3 when, when uh, God is speaking to the prophet Amos and he's speaking to Israel and he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And that means that God had an intimate relationship with Israel. It was a relationship that no other people in the world enjoyed. And so they were God's chosen people, and they were given rights and privileges that other people didn't have. So when Paul uses this word, no, that's what he's talking about. Here he means an intimate knowledge of Christ. He doesn't want to know about Him. He wants a more personal relationship. And so he wanted more than just that bright light that he saw on the road to Damascus because that wasn't something that he could actually touch. It wasn't something he could feel. What he really wanted was to feel Christ's presence in him, to feel that presence through him and all around him. As I said, there's not one of us that will ever have a Damascus Road experience. It won't be true for us that we'll have visions of Christ like the Apostle Paul had. We won't have Scripture revealed to us in such a way that God is going to give us new revelations so that we can write those things down and they become new Scripture. That was for Paul. That was for the apostles. That was his experience. We're not going to have those things. But it is possible for every Christian to have this intimate fellowship, this relationship that Paul is talking about here. Now, the relationship that we have with Christ is not to stop with our conversion experience not to learn things simply that we can recite. And of course, we need to know those things. I mean, our faith is an objective faith. There are concrete realizations that we have from Scripture. But Paul is talking about something more than that. What he's speaking of is communion and fellowship and to feel the presence of God. And so that means that when Paul prayed, he wanted to feel Christ's presence with him. When he preached, he wanted to know that Christ was the one giving him the words. When he witnessed to others, he wanted it to be Christ that took those words and made it effectual in a person's heart, convict hearts of sin. So when Christ is present, we're not going to hear audible words. We're not going to feel him brush us as he goes by. But we know that he's there nonetheless. You know, we express that sometimes in the songs that we sing. We sing songs like, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the presence of the Lord. Sunday mornings, we sing after our morning service, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel his mighty power and his grace. That's the very kind of sentiment that Paul's trying to express. So we're not going to have visions, there won't be audible words. God's not going to speak to us in that way. We won't have miracles, there won't be apparitions. We simply do not know the presence of the Lord in that way. But that doesn't mean that he's not present with us. And we can feel it inside of us and we know that he's real. So if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a pioneer club worker, even if you're a preacher, you can know this, that when you begin to prepare that lesson, when you get ready for your students, whether it's writing a sermon or getting a Sunday school lesson ready, you know that God is the one who's guiding that. And that's what I mean by real. I mean, it's literal. It's deeper than a Damascus experience. It's deeper than simply your conversion. It's not to be interested in the things of Christ. It's to be intimate in His communion and in its fellowship. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. It's literal. Now, secondly, we need to understand that it's learning. And that might seem to be quite obvious. Knowing is learning. But remember here, we're not talking about head knowledge with this. This is not answering trivia questions, as I said, about the Bible and learning Christ in that way. It's to learn Christ through experience. You go to look for a, a job, one of the things the employer asks you for is a resume. And you hand him his resume, your resume, and, and you may look good on paper. You may have all the education that you need. You look, he looks at the degrees that you have, and he says, well, you have all of the knowledge in place, Everything seems to be in order, but what's the one question that he's really going to, he's interested in, he's going to ask you? Do you have any experience? Do you have any experience in this? You know, a few weeks ago I went to the doctor to get checked out, and the doctor was trying to get to know me very intimately because he was about to do a colonoscopy. And so, uh, you know, if I ask him, do you know what you're doing? And he hands me his diploma. Well, that's nice. I like to see that. What I'm more interested in: Have you ever done this before? I mean, do you have the experience? And uh, you know, I, I want to know that before he goes into me to reach my sinuses from the opposite end. I want to know: Do you have experience? So this is really not the thing about getting a diploma. It's it's getting the experience. This is an active thing, and we're talking here. And I don't mean to make light of this, and I'm certainly not trying to make a comparison with what I've just said, but this is the experience of life in Christ. Reading his biography in the Gospels is not the same thing as experiencing his life. Now, in verse number 10, Paul explains knowing him in three real-life experiences. And the first one is feeling his power. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, the Philippians might hear him say this, and they begin to think, well, what do you mean, Paul? What are you saying that you want to know him? you mean that you don't know him? And that's a perfectly legitimate question. It's a good question, because Paul was their teacher. Paul's the one who gave them the gospel. He preached to them. He's the one that told them about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. How could he not know him? And this is where Paul begins to differentiate No, he doesn't mean facts about the resurrection. That's not what he's speaking of. We've all got those facts because we've all been saved by those facts. And we know from studying the Word of God, especially reading the book of 1 Corinthians, that nobody can be saved without the resurrection of Christ. It's an absolute necessity. And that's why Paul told the Corinthians, he said, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. So it's not the fact of the resurrection. That's not what he has in mind. It's the power of the resurrection. He wants to feel the power in him. The very same power that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what he's talking about, having the power of the resurrection. That's power that's above all power, because there he's speaking about the power of God. The power of God himself. Now, I'm amazed at powerful things. Go outside the building and start up my car, and the owner's manual of the car says it's got 190 horsepower. That means that the amount of work that that engine can turn out is like having 190 horses all put together, pulling together, and that's a lot of power. It's a lot more convenient for me to go out there and turn the key than it is to hook up 190 horses to pull me around in a cart, but that's power. That's a lot of power. But there's cars that have more power than that. I mean, there are trucks and bulldozers. They have all kinds of power. So that's real power, but you can't take a car engine and hook it up to a dead body in a cemetery and and expect to raise that body from the dead because there's simply not enough power there. There's not enough. I mean, I don't care how much horsepower that you have. It doesn't make any difference how much knowledge you have. It doesn't matter if you can hook up an atomic accelerator and you're able to to harness all the power of all the atomic bombs in the world. That's not enough power to raise one dead body back to life again. It's not enough power because it takes God's power. And do you know it took the same amount of power to raise bodies from the dead as it did for God to create this world? It takes God's power, resurrection Power is the ultimate power, and really that is exactly what Paul's asking for. It's not trivial. It's not insignificant. That's a big statement when you say, let me have resurrection power. You couldn't ask for more. So why does Paul want that power? Because he wants to experience Christ. And how will he experience him? Now here we're getting right down to the crux of the matter. How is he going to experience him? What does he need this power for? He needs it to live a godly life. You can't live a godly life without God's power, without resurrection power. You know why that's true? The Bible teaches us that the natural man is spiritually dead. You can no, long, you can no more uh, live a godly life without resurrection power than you can raise a dead body. Paul talks in this way. I mean, he says the flesh avails nothing. That's not going to help you with your spiritual living. The first part of the chapter is all about that. Reread it. Go back through it again. The beginning of chapter 3. All the things that he had, they didn't count here. So even as as a Christian, after you get saved, you can't overcome your flesh without this kind of power. How do I know that? Well, you go to Romans chapter 7 and you see the futility of fleshly power. There's where Paul talks about his life and the struggles that he had with sin. To live a godly life, you have to experience the power of the resurrection. So that's why he longs for it. I need that power so I can overcome sin in my life. That's what he's saying. In order for me to get closer and closer to Christ all of the time, that's the kind of power that I need. And so he wants to learn him by experience, experiencing that, utilizing all of that to live this life of godliness. Let me give you just a short, sweet explanation of why godliness was so important to him, and it should be to us. He said this in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Go through the first part of Philippians chapter 3, and look at all those things that he said, these things are losses. But in First Timothy, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Check out godliness in 1st Timothy and you'll find there that Paul uses that expression nine different times. And he needs the power of the resurrection to get that godliness in order to get that great gain. Now the next life experience that we see here is the fellowshipping in his suffering. He says that I might know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Now we would Hear Paul say this, and we would probably respond be very careful what you ask for. Suffering's not a pleasant thing. I don't know many Christians who, who say that I want to experience Christ by suffering. Most of us are doing everything that we can to avoid suffering. And you know, there's some people who have the totally wrong idea about what this means to suffer for Christ. Remember, back in Lexington, Kentucky, where I come from and where I was raised, there was a pastor of a Nazarene church there, that every Easter he would get a cross and he would drag it up and down the street on his back, suffering for Christ. Those of you that probably have seen pictures of people in places like Mexico and other uh, places where Roman Catholicism is predominant, and there are people who actually drive nails into their hands and feet, get nailed to crosses because they think that's what it means to suffer for Christ. That's not what it means. Self-inflicted suffering is really as far from the Bible as you can get. You now, we've used Martin Luther as an example several times to these messages, but Martin Luther flogged himself trying to be holy until he found out there was no way he could be by doing that. Now, Paul doesn't mean here, then, that he desires to go to a cross. Not that he wants to go drag a cross around, That's not what he means by suffering for sin. What he means, or suffering uh, for Christ, what he means here is that when that suffering comes, when persecution comes, he wants to be able to bear up under it, just like the Lord Jesus did. And you see, Paul knew this, he knew that suffering would come because of holiness. He wanted resurrection power to be able to live in godliness and in holiness. And so the next logical step that we would see here is that godliness and holiness bring suffering. Now, Christ wouldn't have suffered at all if he hadn't been a perfect man. I mean, all the good that he did and all the persecution that he received, if you think about it, was because he was a good man. He was a perfect man, and nobody could measure up to him. They didn't like anything that he did. How, why should a perfect man suffer? But that's the way it is in the world. He's a perfect man, so he suffers. You know, no one is going to bother a Christian who's not living like Christ. Nobody's going to bother a Christian who isn't holy. Then if you drink with the boys and if you tell their jokes, if you run with them and you go where they go, then you're not going to suffer any ridicule from any of them. But if you make a decision that I'm, I'm not going to go to the office party this year, I'm not going to booze it up with you, and I'm not going to be in the same room with you while you're doing that, and I'm not going to be with you when you tell, tell your dirty jokes, I'll step outside when you begin. And when you say that I'm not going to be there and participate in the reading of your dirty magazines, then you can expect some ridicule for that. Holy, righteous living always brings persecution. Now, what we have here is really a step-by-step process that Paul's leading us through when he talks about knowing Christ. Knowing him means experiencing that resurrection power. That brings on the ability to, to live a godly life. It, experience, it causes us to experience the fellowship of his suffering, and which in turn brings us to the experience of obedience. And that comes next. Thirdly, is dying to sin. That I may know him being made conformable to to his death. Now Christ died for sin and we died to sin. Christ was bearing sin in his body on the tree. God was crucifying sin because sin was found on Christ. Not that he had any of his own, of course, but that Jesus took our sins for us. He was made sin for us and so he has to die. He was bearing the full weight of sin for those who would believe and trust in him. So now Paul says, I want to experience dying to sin. I want to crucify that sin in my body. And so obedience to Christ does mean this. It means that sin has to be crucified. You can't live in sin and live for God at the same time. It never works. Now think a minute about the obedience of Christ. Paul wants the same obedience. And where did that leave Christ? What kind of position did it put Christ in to be perfectly obedient to his heavenly Father? Well, you can look right back on the page there at Philippians chapter 2, verse number 8. And there it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Obedience is going to bring you to a place of death. Let's talk about that a minute. Paul wanted to be so much like Christ that if it became necessary for him to die, and it may not be necessary for any of us to die for Christ, but if it, did become necessary, then Paul was willing to gladly give his life for Christ. I mean, if this is the sacrifice that has to be made for godly living, if that's what's needed for preaching the gospel, if that's what must happen for winning the loss, then Paul will do that. He will be conformable to Christ's death, and so he'll lay down his life gladly for the cause of Christ. Now, I want take you back to something that I've said many, many times before. It's not original with me, of course, And that's the statement that a person who will not live for Christ certainly will not die for Christ. There are people who talk a, a good game all the time, I will die for Christ, but many of them won't even spend their lives living for him. But if you read the history of Christian martyrs, one of the things that you'll find out is that what they died for was because they lived like Christ. They died because they were living like Christ. I mean, persecutors didn't track down Christians who weren't living like Christ. That's how they identified them. You know, I guess you could say that that bearing fruit for Christ is really a double-edged sword, two-edged sword. And that's because Jesus said, if you want to know who a Christian is, you look at their life, see the fruit that they bear, and therefore you can determine this is a follower, this is someone that you can have fellowship with. So Christ says, by their fruits ye shall know them. Do you know that a persecutor uses exactly the same thing? He looks for fruit. He looks for somebody who's living like a Christian, fruit-bearing Christians. And what does he do? He goes and he chases them down. It's the very same criteria that Paul used when... when, uh, Uh, He was the Saul, the persecutor. Listen to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. If he found any of this way, how would he know? that they were of this way. That means Christians. How would he know? Unless they lived for Christ, unless they professed him. So the criterion has always been the same for a persecutor. He goes out looking for fruit. He goes out looking for somebody who's living like Christ. And so if he tracks some down, as these Romans used to do when they were looking for Christians, as Paul would do, and that Christian said, well, I renounce Christ. And if they would say, Caesar is Lord and they leave them alone. They don't bother them. They're, they're not obedient to Christ because they don't live for him. Now, Paul says, though, that I want to die to my sins. I want to live for him. And if that means that I have to die for him, then so be it. These are the kinds of things that Paul is talking about when he says, I want to know him. I want to experience living and dying for him. I want the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. A little bit later as we go on in this third chapter, and we have many, many more verses to cover, but we'll see this, that Paul is expecting the Philippians to take on the same kind of attitude. And for most, they would say that's very fanatical. That's a very radical thing to do. But Paul said, this is what it means. If you want to know Christ, these are the kinds of things that you have to take on yourself. Now, I would submit to you then that knowing Christ is more... Then knowing all the facts and the figures, knowing Christ is more than reading his biography. As I said, learning about his life in the Gospels, this is so much more than that. Paul says, let me be so intimate with him that if dying for him is what it takes, I'm willing to die. Now let's go on to the third consideration. Uh, The third one is it's life-giving. Now that seems kind of odd with all this talk we have about death, but dying to sin and dying for Christ is actually life-giving. I mean, this is what it really means to live. We're, we're accustomed to thinking, especially the American people, that really living is when we enjoy ourselves to the fullest with everything the world has to offer. Watch television and we see that program that Robin Leach used to have, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. We're enamored with that. We see the money, we see the cars, we see the vacations, the beach resorts. And our thoughts tell us that's what living must be all about. But living is really when you're talking about eternal life. You're really living when you have Christ living inside of you. verse number 11 says, "...if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead." Confusing verse for some people because Paul is not saying, I doubt the resurrection. He's not saying, if here, as a, an if of doubt. Neither is he saying here, I'm working for my salvation. I'm trying to get into the resurrection. I'm striving for that. I'm trying to obtain it. It's not his idea. But there are two things that we need to notice about it, what Paul is speaking of. The first one is that he's speaking here about a parting from sinners. A parting from sinners. The resurrection is a parting from from sinners. Now, he's not really talking here about a general resurrection because all people, regardless of whether you're saved or lost, there's going to come a resurrection. Saved will be raised to to heaven. The dead will be raised to go into... The lost will be raised to go into hell. Those resurrections are separated by at least a thousand or a little bit more years. Now, Paul means that when he is raised, then he'll depart from this world of sin. While living here, he's, he, he is imperfect. I mean, he, he has the realization that, that he, he can't live a perfect life. He struggles with sin. He fights against sin, just like all of us fight against sin. And that's because we're still in this fleshly nature. We, I mean, we're still in this fleshly body, and we still have that, that nature that's there. It's not eradicated. And so in order to leave that behind, in order to leave that sinful body behind, you have to be resurrected from it. So that's what he's speaking of here when he uses the word if. If I'm going to escape sin, I must die physically and then I'll be resurrected. So the resurrection is actually life-giving. To know Christ intimately, the highest expression of knowing Christ, the highest experience would be what? Knowing him in heaven, being resurrected to be with him. Then secondly, and I think this is really an interesting part to me, is that it's a preview for sinners, Uh, There's some interesting ways or statements, the way that Paul makes this phraseology here. It's a parting from sinners, it's a preview for sinners. He says, to attain under the resurrection. Now, in the literal, or the original language, I should say, that has the meaning of standing up in the resurrection. His life is a preview of what it means to be spiritually resurrected. Now he says this because, to the Greek mind, to the Greeks that he was speaking to, living people are regarded as standing up, and dead people are seen as lying down. So what Paul is actually using here, or, or he's got a pun. That he's using. He's turning a phrase here and giving a picture that when his life is lived in resurrection power and when he's suffering for Christ by being in obedience to him, he appears as a spiritually alive man among the rest of the world that are all spiritually dead sinners. That's what he's trying to get across. And so he says, we who are obedient to the Lord, who are actually dying to sin and dying to self, We're the ones who are left standing up. The rest of the people are dead. They're just like dead corpses, spiritually dead. So what's the picture he's trying to give us? Well, the difference here is who is really living? Who's living and who's not living? Does life consist in the lifestyles of the rich and famous without Christ? Or is it suffering for Christ through obedience? Is that really what it means to know Christ? Now that's the difference about between knowing him and knowing Christ. The world knows about him. They've read the biography, many of them have. But they don't know him in the same way that Paul is speaking here. And let me finish then with this thought tonight. Are you among the dead or the living? The resurrection of the dead is really a wonderful phrase in the Greek New Testament, the Greek Bible... Because you don't find that expression used anywhere in classical Greek or anything like that at that particular time. The literal rendering of that phrase is the out-resurrection from among the corpses. When Paul was speaking to the people on Mars Hill, to the Greeks there, when he began to talk about the resurrection, they mocked him, made fun of him. The resurrection was totally foolishness to them. But whether we're talking about a physical resurrection or whether we're speaking of a spiritual resurrection, either way, it doesn't make any difference. The lost man is a corpse. The lost man is a corpse. He, so I was talking on, on Sunday, this past Sunday morning, that lost people may be physically alive, but the Bible says they are spiritually dead. There's no, there's no help in them. There's no life in them. So the only thing that will raise a person who is either... Spiritually or physically dead is resurrection power. On Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, coming up in a couple of weeks, we'll be going to John chapter 5. We'll leave Matthew for a little bit just for that one Sunday to look at John chapter 5. I'll talk about on that Sunday morning the resurrections that Christ speaks of in that chapter. And just a little, bit of a little preview of that. He's speaking of both a spiritual resurrection. There is a spiritual resurrection... And that's not a spiritual resurrection in the sense that when you die and your body goes in the grave, only your spirit is raised. But there's a spiritual resurrection when a person believes in Jesus Christ, when he trusts him as Savior, you are raised into spiritual life. And Jesus talks about that in the same context, in the same part of the chapter where he talks about the raising of the physical body. So there is a spiritual and there is a physical resurrection in that sense. And the only way either one comes about is by the resurrection power available to us only through faith in Jesus Christ, which comes by the power of God. So here we're talking about grace through faith. You know you really can't go very far in Paul's writings, read anything he says, that you're not going to stumble all over grace. You're going to fall in it, you're going to step in it, It's going to be up to your ankles, to your knees, to your waist, to your elbows, to your shoulders and over your head you're going to be immersed in god's grace because that's what it's all about for the apostle paul let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the time we spend together tonight thank you for your word and what a blessing it is to know that it's possible for us to know you in such an intimate way that we can feel you in us above us around us surrounding us your presence is here and we thank you for that help your people to learn Really, to live in resurrection power. That's what it takes for us to live a godly life. May we seek it, even as the Apostle Paul did. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.